are indeed the two that God is going to use to regenerate and uh, do the end-time work, ultimately preaching the gospel around the world. And when they are killed in the streets of Jerusalem, then it is only three and a half days before Christ returns. So, I want to make a point here, because we're going to see the first thing that the Scripture indicates must be done uh, is build a temple. Now, most people, I think, that are worldwide oriented, and most uh, even of the Christian world and the Jewish world think that the Jews are going to build a temple of God in Jerusalem and the Middle East. That is the consensus wherever you go, is that's the Jews' job. Well, uh, I've just told you that God is going to do his end-time work through a remnant of his church with the leaders that he's appointing, and they are named in Haggai, Zechariah, and uh, the book of Revelation. Let's go for a moment to... Matthew 23. We've covered this before, but I'm kind of doing a summary here so that we have firmly in mind who must do what. Matthew 23, uh, Christ is talking to the Pharisees and their leaders, Sanhedrin, whoever was there. Verse 23 of, of chapter 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. You should have done the first, but you shouldn't have left the other undone either. Then he calls them blind guides, but strain it in that and swallow a camel. Calls them hypocrites again, that clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but they're full of extortion and excess. He calls them blind spiritually blind. They could physically see, obviously, they followed him around and gave him a hassle. Uh, then he calls them whited sepulchers in verse 27, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Or uncleanness. You know, you can bury people and you can put up a real nice headstone, looks pretty good, but don't dig them up. Uh, they're not going to smell very good. And he says, that's the way you smell to him. So he says, you outwardly, verse 28, appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And then he prescribes woe upon them, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. So they, uh, they will pay attention to the prophets, and they'll even put flowers on the graves of the righteous, but their heart is filthy and they're unclean. Then he calls them serpents in verse 33, a generation of vipers, and said, how are you going to escape the damnation of the lake of fire? This is a pretty strong pronouncement. You can't talk that strong to most people without getting in trouble of some kind. <laughs> he just laid it on them. I send to you prophets... He says, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. And you're going to kill them and crucify them. You'll scourge them in your synagogues and persecute them. So, he's just letting the hammer down. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from Abel to Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. All these things shall come on this generation. Well, that's pretty scary stuff. Not only yourselves, but the blood of others is going to come down on you. This is the leader of the Jewish people. Okay? Jewish leaders. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. So he's going to leave their house desolate. Now notice this, verse 39, For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Eternal. So who came in the name of the Eternal? The apostles. Is it going to be Jews who are over the tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God? Jewish leaders? 
No, it's going to be the apostles. Were the apostles Jews? No. Not at all. So he decried the leadership of the tribe of Judah here very strongly. And then he says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you until you accept those whom I sent. They have not accepted the apostles, the New Testament writings that those apostles gave. Uh, they still only go with the Tanakh, the Old Testament. They have not accepted what Christ sent at all. Uh, so how are they going to do anything for Christ? They can't. They won't. They didn't even believe him when he said in the next chapter that uh, not one stone of the temple would be left upon another. To this day, they go up to what they call the west wall of the temple, the wailing wall, they call it, and wail and rip and scream and holler and kiss the stones, uh, trying to invoke God's blessing and mercy. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. Well, A, Christ said there wouldn't be one stone left upon another. So how's that wall still intact if that's the west wall of the temple? Well, the obvious answer is it isn't the west wall of the temple. <laughs> it can't be since Christ said it wouldn't be there. So they've got a fake in Jerusalem. So I hope it's clear to us that God is going to use those who are following the scriptures that the apostles wrote, inspired by Christ himself, and telling his story, and telling about him in the New Testament. Now, the old is still valid, of course, because that's where the prophecies are of the end time. But uh, we have accepted the whole of God's word and that of those whom he sent, and the Jews have not. So there is no way on this earth that God would allow them, after what Christ said there, to build his temple or to do anything for him. Don't see me anymore till you accept me. A few Messianics have accepted parts of the New Testament, uh, but they don't understand who God is, and they're just basically hyped up Protestants is all it amounts to, Jewish Protestants. They still don't understand the truth of God. So, now let's go to the book of Haggai with that background and understand that whatever is built is going to be built by God's people. And that the two witnesses of Haggai, Zechariah, and Revelation 11 are people who are part of God's church, part of the called out ones that he has sent. We, we just simply cannot go by what the religionists of this world say. So let's go to Haggai. We've been over this many times. In fact, these pages in my Bible are almost worn out. I've got scotch tape here and there. Uh, I've turned here so many times in the last over 21 years now. But here we find the story uh, written to and about the end-time remnant of the church. Isaiah 6, I think it's the last verse, says that uh, he, will, he will gather one out of ten, ten percent. He says his portion in Zechariah 2. What is his portion? Ten percent. That's what a tithe is, his portion. Uh, so, And there are other scriptures that indicate that. Here in Haggai, it doesn't mention the percentage, but it says a remnant uh, will be called. Now, who does he address? This word came by Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. So here you see these two leaders that we have already identified as the two who will do the preaching and who will oversee the church at the end uh, addressed first. Uh, Joshua is included as the high priest. So uh, in the light of uh, one of the leader of the two being a type of Moses, you have here the other being a type also of Aaron, or the high priest of that day. Uh, they work together to oversee and to help God's people and be sure that the work that needs to be done is done. So he says to them, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, 
This people say the time has not come, the time that the Eternal's house should be built. So there will be opposition to the leaders when they appear to build the temple. There will be opposition. People will say it isn't time to do this. Or, as I already covered, they'll say that's the Jews' job, not the church's job. And on and on it goes, and most of the church will not accept them. Ninety percent of it will not. Only one out of ten, or God's portion, his tithe, will show up to do the job. So he addresses them right off the bat and says, I want you to go do something, but the people are going to say, no, there's a time to do that. It's time to build a spiritual church, they'll say. Well, we can go to Zechariah 4, which we probably will, and there it tells Zerubbabel, along with Joshua, that they are to feed the church. That's their first job. And we saw that in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, that they're told to measure the altar and then the worship therein and leave the court of the Gentiles out at that point, just to the church later on to the rest of the world. But they start out building what? The spiritual temple. That's very obvious. But there's no one, as I've said many times, who would object to building a spiritual temple. I mean, the New Testament is very clear that our bodies are the temple of the Spirit, that the church itself is uh, the body of Christ and is a temple. Uh, so the spiritual temple nobody argues with. That's why I maintain this has to be talking about a physical temple, because that's what they object to. <laughs> they don't object to the spiritual temple whatsoever. So when you say it's time to build the physical temple, they'll say, oh, no way, it isn't time to do that. You're, you're nuts. So here comes the word again. Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your fine homes and this house lie waste? Now, what do we live in? Our physical homes. Is it time for us, even if you're only speaking spiritually here, is it, is it time for us to withdraw and just me and God's Spirit and me? And no, not time to do that either. It's time to be outflowing and outgoing. So he says, you live in your fine homes. Where do I live? Now people will bring up the scripture that says God doesn't live in a temple made by hands. What do we do with that? Well, he has before, hasn't he? Hasn't he lived in a temple made by hands? Well, what about the tabernacle in the wilderness? How about him coming and putting his glory in Solomon's temple? He dwelt there. He says he's going to come and do the same thing in Zechariah 2 here in the end time. So, obviously, when it says he doesn't dwell in a temple made by hands, he's not saying that he will never have his presence in something built by hands. He dwells on his throne in heaven. It's where he dwells. But he does spend time and bring his glory to physical temples. you got to put these things in the context. I, don't, I can't even think where that is right at the moment. But I think the context will make it clear that it's not talking about him never dwelling or being in or having his glory in something made by men, because we've got several examples where it has occurred. <coughs> so is it time for us just to feather our own nests, take care of ourselves, and live in our McMansions till they're gone? Isaiah 5 shows they're going to be taken away, among other places. And his house lie waste. Now therefore, thus says the Eternal, consider your ways. All right, let's think about our lives, he says. Let's think about us. You have sown much, and you bring in little. You can be hardworking, you can have two jobs, or whatever, but you still don't bring in much. Uh, that's just not the way our culture and society is set up now. It's set up so that the corporations get most of the money, and they pay you as little as possible to get you to work for them, and then they keep the standard of living and the cost of product so high that you and your wife both have to work, in order probably to have a house anymore and to have everything you need. So you don't bring in much, and even if you do have a pretty good job and bring in quite a bit, then you got workman's comp and taxes and 
all the withholdings, and by the time you get your take-home pay, it is greatly diminished from what your gross was, or have you noticed? You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. How many people are really truly satisfied with their lives and so on? Uh, they eat and drink, and then they go back to the kitchen and find something sweet to eat later, and uh, they get the hungries and this and that. And what we eat doesn't always satisfy us. And if you have a sugar craving, you're never satisfied because you want more, more, more. You clothe you, but there is none warm, and he that earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. So, no matter how cushy things seem, you're still not really satisfied. There, there are things missing, and it seems like the money just goes away. You bring it home, and suddenly it's gone. So he says, this is the way society is here at the end, and that's essentially true. Of nearly everyone. <coughs> so he says, Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, Consider your ways. Think about it. If everything is not hunky-dory, and you're not living in total peace and happiness, and there are still vacant places and problems, consider your ways. Think it over. Am I getting everything I need? Do I have everything I need? Where is the peace and the happiness and the security in a world gone crazy? Go up to the mountains. He says, get your focus. Here, let's, let's do something. Let's, let's think about it. Let's do something. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. There's timber up here in the mountains big enough to do this. In the Middle East, uh, good luck. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? Says the Eternal of Hosts. We can go through a plethora of prophecies that show that God is going to begin to take away everything that we have had that we thought was good. Uh, I just read a scripture in Isaiah this morning that talked about the vineyards going away. There's a big fire right now up in the Central Valley of California, and it's burning up vineyards right and left, and homes. Hundreds of people evacuated. These prophecies are just coming alive. <laughs> That's just the way it is. So I blew upon it. Why? Says the Eternal of Hosts, because of my house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house. Is the church of God focused on building the temple of God? No, they don't have a clue. They're thinking if they rebuild the temple of worldwide spiritually, that that's all that's needed. Or a few of them think that they ought to rebuild the college and they ought to rebuild the auditorium and all that kind of stuff. Recreate worldwide church of God that God blew apart. <laughs> oh, well, you know, what, what, what's this all about? They just don't get it. They don't understand Haggai or Zechariah. Well, God is going to give understanding where it's needed. So they're building their own houses, not God's house, whether it be a physical house for them to live in or whether it be uh, a church, a spiritual house. They're, they're doing their thing. They're not doing what God wants. They, they have not yet stumbled across the idea that maybe God destroyed worldwide because he didn't like it, in spite of the fact that Revelation 3 says, I'll spew you out if I don't like what you're doing. They didn't get it. Well, they all think it's everybody but them. And then, therefore, no one focuses on what needs to be done because it's the other guy. That's why you're here, is that you recognize God spewed you. God spewed me. I have to repent. You know how vomit smells? You probably can re vaguely remember that. Not very pleasant. <laughs> it's not very pleasant. So for God to smell what Christ spewed out is not pleasant to him. 
So rebuilding that which he threw up is like a dog eating its vomit and throwing it up again. He was upset with Worldwide Church of God. You're pretty upset with dinner if you chuck it up, or your tummy is, right? So let's not rebuild that. Let's go beyond that somehow, some way. Let's become more righteous than we were then. And let's try to focus on what God wants done, not what we might want done. So all of them say, no time to build a physical temple. If anybody's going to do it, it's going to be the Jews. Most of the people in the church would tell you that. That would be their pat answer. But I've already showed you it can't be the Jews. <laughs> if it's going to be built, it's got to be us. God's, God's church. Therefore the heaven over you stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine. Isn't that what it says there at the end of Amos 8? It's a famine of the word, not just of physical famine. So this is talking to the church here. This isn't talking to the whole nation. So our nation is starting and will have famine and pestilence very soon. Uh, and the church is already suffering a spiritual famine and drought, though not yet physical. Everybody seems to be fat enough, thank you. We have plenty to eat. Uh, so this is a spiritual famine, as, as Amos says. Now, Amos says that right at the time when it's talking about the new moon, the eclipse, the darkness over the land, and the trembling of the land, and the floods of water, and so on. So the church has a spiritual drought. At the same time, the nation is beginning to feel the effects of things that are going to destroy it. So everything's right on schedule. And there is a famine of the Word over the church. They do not have any idea what God wants done right now. They don't have any idea. So they go on about printing their little booklets and having their little broadcasts that are accomplishing almost nothing. So let's listen to God. What does God want? Then Zerubbabel and Joshua... Of the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Eternal their God, and the words of Haggai, and the Eternal their God had sent him, or as he had sent them, and the people did fear before the Eternal. Now remember I told you just yesterday or the other day that Herbert Armstrong told me that he was Zerubbabel. So he understood, at least part, partially, he understood that this book and Zechariah had to do with the end-time church. Herbert Armstrong understood that, or he wouldn't have said he was Zerubbabel. Now, as I said, I believe he was a type, because he did build a spiritual temple, and even the house of God, the physical temple. That's the way he looked upon it. Uh, so he did do that, and with the knowledge of thinking that he was this Zerubbabel, but it turns out he's not the final one, because this has still got to be done. <clears throat> but people need to grasp that even he understood these scriptures to some degree. Not the final fulfillment, but as far as his vision could take it. So they obeyed, and they feared God. Then spoke uh, Haggai, uh, the eternal's messenger, or message, this is, I've written over it so much, messenger, I guess it says. I've written over it so much, it's got ink on it, I can hardly read it. Uh, to the people saying, I am with you, says the eternal. So God says, all right, let's reconsider, let's decide to do what needs to be done, I'll be with you. Can you ask for more than that? I'll be with you. And the Eternal stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the, pre and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Eternal of hosts, their God. So this is a prophecy that is going to come to pass. He says they came and they worked. In the seventh month on the 20th, 21st day of the month, that's uh, 
the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, two days from now, seventh month, 21st day. Feast begins on the 15th, so the 21st is the seventh day. So he said, Speak to Zerubbabel and Joshua and to the residue, a remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? I was there, and I saw the gold-painted shovel that Herbert Armstrong used to break ground for the house of God, he called it. And it was on a plaque there on the side of the building. Uh, I saw it being built, uh, went there, and attended services there over time. So I saw it. It, as, as good as it got, I saw it. And some of you did too. Some of you visited there. Some of you saw it. And there are some of us now who are getting old, <coughs> who's left, that saw that. <laughs> How many of you did see it, that building? One, two, three, four, five, six. See? Not too many. And uh, the number is getting smaller day by day as we get old and die across the, spec- the whole spectrum of the church. <laughs> Not too many. Now, this tells me that Herbert Armstrong didn't understand that part. He thought the former temple was the one that Christ said would be torn down that was there in Christ's day that he taught in, and he was the latter temple. Now we understand that he was the former temple, and there's still some of us around who saw it who will see the latter and be able to make the comparison. And that's not even built yet, so you've got to hang on a while longer if you're going to be one of those old folks that's around to be able to compare. <laughs> it won't be long, though. It won't be long. But that shows that it came within the lifetime. Both of them came within the lifetime of this generation. And that's what Christ meant when he said that this generation will not pass away. He was speaking prophetically there. Look at the context. He's speaking of the end of the age. And he says that those of that generation would not perish before these things were finished. So those that he called early in Herbert Armstrong's ministry, there will still be some left of to see the latter temple in its final glory. And I I think certainly that that appears both physically and spiritually, or applies both. Uh, I mean, we, we have to grow from what we were spiritually, but we also have to build a physical temple. Uh, another proof that it's physical temple is in Matthew 24:14, where it says, when the abomination is set up in the temple, the spiritual temple, the people flee to a place of safety. Uh, if you, so, he doesn't defile the spiritual temple. The people where God's Spirit dwells, they leave. But it defiles the physical temple, what's built there. And then they have their rule in it for 42 months, the times of the Gentiles during the tribulation. Well, that's the way that works. So this has got to be a physical thing. He's not going to defile and kill you. (laughs) You're going to flee to Zion. So he says, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, and be strong, Joshua, and be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you, says the Eternal of hosts. So there's going to be opposition. Remember the story in Ezra, where people came and they opposed the building of the temple, and they got uh, truncated for 13 to 17 years, depending on who you talk to, before it could be finished. Now, we don't have that much time left for this to happen. But we have people who came right here who understood that this had to be done, and they're fighting us right now, trying to stop what we started here, thinking they should take over and do it. Well, God will make that judgment. We'll see. (laughs) I don't think they're going to manage, because they are in a spirit of rebellion about what we came here to do, And some of them now want to sell the land that God set aside for us to have, to use, for his remnant to begin to gather to. 
I don't think God's going to bless that effort. I really don't. He says the rebels will be gotten rid of. So just as in Ezra's day, uh, those who came and rebelled and tried to stop it had to be gotten rid of. They had to be diminished and their power taken away, stripped of it. Hey, it happens, the prophecies, over and over again, and there's always a similar pattern. So that's what we're looking at right now today. Everything's right on schedule. <laughs> that's why I don't worry about it. It's right on schedule. The good and the bad. But you know, when the bad prophecies happen, that encourages me. Because I know that if God wrote the bad prophecy 4,000 years ago, He also wrote the good prophecy 4,000 years ago, and they all have to be fulfilled. So when the bad ones come around and they are fulfilled, that just tells me God's in heaven. He knows exactly what He's doing. He knew it a long time ago, and it's happening just like He said, so I need to worship Him. Simple. Why worry? He says, don't worry. Be strong. Go to work. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Mitzrayim, so my spirit remains among you. Fear you not. What did he do when they came out of Mitzrayim? He parted the Red Sea. He gave them water out of the rocks. He gave them quail and manna from the heavens. He says, I'm going to be with you the same way I was with them. I'll take care of you. Nobody's going to kill you. Nobody's going to destroy you. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. Now, do we believe him? Do we believe him? Will I find faith on the earth? Do we move forward in faith or cower in fear because of the new world order? I know what they are. I know what they're doing. Isaiah 7 says, don't fear them, fear me. Very clear. I'll take care of you. We sing the song, God will take care of you. I don't remember what that one is, but the line comes to mind. In every day, in every way, whatever. I think it's a Protestant song, but nevertheless, that's what the Scriptures say. I will take care of you. Don't worry about it. My spirit will be with you just like it was then. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, yet once it is a little while. So this is, a, this is an end-time prophecy, I kid you not. It is a little while when he calls for this to be done. He says, consider your ways, go up, get this temple built. For it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. So that's the end of the age. So this isn't some temple way back somewhere. This is right here at the end. <clears throat> and I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. So his glory is going to be there again in this one that has to be built soon. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Eternal of hosts. Now I think before we finish the feast, we'll get back into Isaiah 40 on, and in 44 and 45, he says he is going to reveal his treasures, his silver, his gold, probably his historical records, I think. He's going to reveal all those things and that they will be revealed for the sake of his people Jacob, which is what we are here. I just read a scripture this morning that says, if God had not saved us a small remnant we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, totally wiped out. Well, we've been pretty close to totally wiped out, haven't we? Even we got up to 150, 1% of what worldwide was, and we've been decimated to about 10% of that. Almost wiped out. But fear not, I'm with you. And I'm going to bring my remnant. He says, I'll give you children for those that you have lost, and you'll get the job done. So, verse 8 is just sort of thrown in there. What silver? What gold, you might say? Well, he tells us in Isaiah 44 and 45, which gold and which silver? He's going to have an unconverted man who does not know God bring these things forth. Also a type of Cyrus 
who funded Ezra. Cyrus the king gave them everything they needed to go build a temple. That's why he uses this modern-day person as a type of Cyrus, because he's going to come up with all these treasures, and he's going to fund the building of the temple. We go up, cut the wood for the framework, apparently, as it says here, and it does say three rows of timbers there in Ezra at one point, two were used, so wood, wood was used in the building of that temple. But then we'll have all the silver and the gold to coat it with, and God will then have his glory there, because it's a type of the heavenly Jerusalem that is going to come down with streets of gold and walls of gold. This sounds like a fairy story, doesn't it? We're about to come up with the greatest treasures known to man. I fully believe that. And I've seen evidence of it. So, the riches are God's. They're not anybody's. People say, well, do you have a contract with this guy that's apparently finding about to find this stuff and is, has seen all of these things? And I say, no. Well, you'll get cheated. You'll get kicked aside. I say, no, well, this is for the use of God's people, and it's His. And it says that that stuff is going to be found there in Isaiah 45 for the use of Jacob in order to show the world that God is God. So why do I need a contract? God's already said how it's going to turn out. I'm not worried. A human being, yeah, they'll go back on their word. They'll cheat you. They'll defraud you. I've had business partners do that to me in the past, and they don't mind taking all the money. I've learned that. But I'm not worried about this one, because this is what God says is His. He'll take care of it. The U.S. government ain't getting it either. Neither is the government of Spain or Portugal or the Catholic Church or anybody else. Until... They defile the temple, and we have to run to Zion. Then they'll get it. They'll have it all. And I don't care. I don't care. Three and a half years later, they're going into the lake of fire, and they're going to leave it all behind. And there are other scriptures that say it's going to all be gathered up and used for God's people in the millennium. So what's to worry? I'm not in the least bit worried. Sometimes I cringe when that individual that I think I know, and I think by now it has to be known, we're that close. I kind of cringe when he flaps his jaws because he does everywhere he goes. And he keeps saying, well, this is top secret. Don't tell him that. I said, I ain't telling nobody. If anybody tells, it's going to be you. I don't know how many times I've told him that. Because he's the one that talks. I'm not worried about it. God has protected this stuff all these years. And he kept the Mormons from finding it when they were really putting out scouts and searching for it. They don't have it. So what's to worry? Silver's mine, gold's mine. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. Herbert Armstrong had a few gold fixtures in the house of God. This was going to have walls and floors of gold. Gold covered. And I don't think it'll just be a real thin cover either. <laughs> There's plenty there. It'll be greater. And in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. So there can't be any rebels, can't be any dissenters, can't be anybody who's fighting against. There will be peace. That's a nice sounding word, isn't it? Peace. Not very common, but it sure sounds good. <laughs> and then the 24th day of the ninth month, uh, the word came again. Ask now the priests concerning the law. Now, there's some issues that need to be resolved, apparently. What about the law? If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. In Isaiah 52, it says, Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. So he's going to give us some conditions here. We can't be touching the unclean thing. We have to get away from satanic 
ways and satanic culture which we are surrounded by. We have to reject the things of Satan and the world and accept the things of God. He says, I'm not going to have any people here who are not going to be a part of my holiness. If you're part of the world and you want to bring the world with you, forget it. Stay away. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Eternal, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. So we've got to be clean. We've got to be pure. We've got to do things right. It's going to be a holy temple. And it's got to be more holy than it was in worldwide because that's the former which this has to eclipse by far. So you and I have to have a higher level of spirituality and righteousness than we did individually back then. Repentance, change, overcoming, growing. We've got to do better than we did then. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the eternal. So he says, now I'm going to make a statement here. He says, first of all, I want you to consider the law. I want you to be clean. And then I'm going to bless you. Since those days were when one came to a heap of twenty measures and there were but ten, when one came to the press fat for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you turned not to me, says the Eternal. So he says, you were in worldwide and it began to come apart and you went into spiritual drought and famine and that was pronounced upon us by the Tkachas when they began to depart from the truths that God had given and go right back into the Protestantism and satanic worship of the world. Sunday is not the Sabbath. I'm sorry. <laughs> Christmas is not a holy day. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. It's just the truth. It's the way it is. And they went back to all that stuff. They're not the church of God anymore. They were a church of Satan the devil. He's children you are whom you serve. So he says, I did all this and you didn't turn to me. Has the church of God turned to him? No, they haven't. They haven't. They're still going on just like they were when they were spewed. That's not what we need. So he says, consider now, there, there's a point, he says, when I'm going to take those that have changed, those who are faithful, from this day and forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, even from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree has not brought forth? From this day will I bless you. So it has seemed that even though we have understood this now for some time, nothing really has happened yet that you can really put your finger on. He says, is, is the barn full? <laughs> is everything produced? No, we're still sitting here kind of empty. So he says, some point here, I'm going to begin to bless you. We've always looked at the 9th and 24th, which comes in December, and the Festival of Lights, uh, after the temple was cleansed, begins the day after that. So God says, I'm going to start blessing you, and then the Festival of Lights appears immediately, so that means that he's cleansed the temple. Isaiah 44 says, he's, I'll remove all your sins as a cloud before me. So he will at that point consider us righteous, and that's just before the treasures are found in Isaiah 44 and 45. I'll remove your sins as a cloud. So then he can stand us and he can look upon us again. So we need to be praying for that day when God will turn his face to us and begin to bless us. And then the barn will start filling. Then these things and blessings will begin to come. 
So then he says, speak to Zerubbabel, verse 21, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Now he said a little while in a will back then. Now he says, when I start blessing you, then it's going to start shaking. Not a little while anymore. It's going to start shaking. And isn't the remnant, according to Jeremiah, supposed to flee just ahead of the northern army, saying, how can I find Zion? Where's Zion? I'm running for my very life at that point. I need to get to Zion. So, the time of the shaking all begins about the same time that God is going to begin to bless His people. Now, that makes sense to me from the standpoint that people say, well, if you find those treasures, then the government will come after them. Yeah, that's true. They probably would. But, if the shaking commences about then, and civil war comes, and martial law comes, and there's total confusion throughout the land, and the coalition against America is beginning to come in and invade, nobody's going to have time to worry about what some little church is doing somewhere. And God said he'll be a wall of fire around it protect it. So what are we worried about? Fear not, I'll take care of you, he says. Tells the rubber bell, I'm going to shake it. <laughs> he's going to shake it. Scare me to death. No, he's in charge. He said he'll take care of us. I'll shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. And he says, in that day I'll take you, Zerubbabel, as my servant and my signet, for I have chosen you, says the Eternal of hosts. So the Moses Zerubbabel figure will be the man totally in charge. They'll work together, but he will be the one in charge. No doubt about that from this and other scriptures. So it's a time of great tumult. And this shows it, again, is right at the end of the age. Uh, Herbert Armstrong did not live till the end of the age. He died over 30 years ago. So this is yet to happen. Let's go back then to Ezra and see a little more of the story because it's a parallel and this is a historical account of what is about to happen. Now, I've already mentioned a Cyrus. Uh, this Cyrus, a king of Persia here in verse 2, uh, you'll remember the story of Esther in the book of Esther and how she was married to the Persian king and they had a son whose name was Cyrus. So, he had an affinity for the Jews. His mother was a Jew. And uh, God had saved the Jewish nation uh, at that time through Esther and her efforts along with her uncle. So, this is that son of Esther being addressed here in the book of Ezra. So, he was kind. He had a kindness toward the people of God. Now, the man that is finding, or about to find, these treasures, and I've seen so much evidence that they are there, it's just the final finding that's the key. I have no doubt they're there. But he had a dream years ago. Uh, we've been here now for, well, we came first came to this area in 2001, into this land, end of 2002. And he showed up in 2006, and he said, uh, I'm looking for the pastel. He has a lisp. And uh, he says, is that you? And I says, well, I guess it is. He wanted to show me where Jerusalem was. So some of us went up with him uh, the following Sunday and uh, saw it. Some of you saw it yesterday. So... Uh, it's it's desolate, just like the Bible said it would be for many generations. There's nothing there. But he had had a dream that he was to come find the commandment keepers in cane beds of all places. And we're the only commandment keepers here. So he has had an affinity for us ever since. Most of his family has given up on him, and some parts of his lifestyle and various things about him and uh, and so on, they just don't feel comfortable following his lead at this point. Nor do we. 
except in terms of treasures that God is going to reveal to him. So, he has an affinity for us. He keeps coming back to us because his family won't pay any attention to him for the most part. Uh, and he does not agree with us on much religiously, and we don't with him. But he does have a lot of archaeological and historical information, which is good. Well, that's the only thing I pay attention to. But he has an affinity, and he keeps coming back to us as the only ones who are really paying attention to that which he's doing. That's of God. This Cyrus, notice what he says. God has charged me, in the verse 2, to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the eternal God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus told these people that God had given him a commission to build a temple, but he was going to have God's people go do it. He wasn't going to do it. We'll see here in a little bit. He gave them the money to go do it. He didn't go do it. Keep your finger there and thumb back to Isaiah 44 for a moment, last few verses. It's talking about God that frustrates, verse 25, the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad that turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolish. You see, this whole thing about Jerusalem and the Promised Land is going to make all the people who think it's in the Middle East look like idiots by comparison when they understand the real truth. <clears throat> They'll look really foolish. That confirms the word of his servant. So God says, I'm the one that confirms it and performs the counsel of his messengers that says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. It isn't now. It shall be. The one in the Middle East is inhabited. So why do you need this prophecy of the end time for that? You don't. You need it for the one that doesn't have anybody living there. It will be inhabited. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Now, is... This is the God who dried up the Red Sea. This is the God who backed up the Jordan. That's what he's telling us here. That says of Cyrus, the end time Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He may be carnal, he may not know God, but he has a job to do. And shall perform all my pleasure. So he's going to do what God wants him to do, so I don't need a contract. I'm not worried about it. Okay? Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So here God is telling us that there are two jobs to be done. The temple has to be built, and Jerusalem has to be built. What do we find in Haggai? The temple needs to be built. What do we find in Daniel 9, 70 weeks prophecy? Jerusalem has to be built. What do we see in history? The book of Ezra, which says they built the temple. Then you have the book of Nehemiah right after it that says they built Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem. So, history is prophecy. Both have to be done here at the end. And between now and 2026, I do believe. It takes 70 weeks, 69 weeks, the 70 weeks prophecy anyway, to build Jerusalem. Daniel 9. How long does it take to build a temple? I don't know. But the tribulation is three and a half years, and from about 2018, we've got about three and a half years before probably Jerusalem will have to be built. Because Jerusalem is built, and at the end of that 70 weeks, the abomination is set up in it, and you flee. So the tribulation, the three and a half years, begins that day. So from Christ returning at the end of the tribulation count back three and a half years, and the temple has, to, I mean, the Jerusalem has to be finished by then. Count back another 70 weeks before that order was given, and that's nearly another year and a half, and then you've got to have time to gather the people and to build the temple before the order to build Jerusalem is given. 
It was consecutive in the Old Testament, not being built at the same time, Ezra and then Nehemiah. I think the same is true here. That means this has to be going pretty quick, and that means that our nation is going to be falling apart pretty quick, and people are going to be fleeing before the northern army saying, how do I get to Zion? We don't have a lot of time. This is going to happen fairly quickly now. But notice it said here, he said, Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. I brought this up to this modern Ross or Cyrus. The name is the same root. Uh, because there's a, a white house by the highway that we drove past yesterday. I pointed it out to some people. Uh, where he was living at the time, just south of Jerusalem. And I think Nelson was in the room. He may have been asleep because he slept through some of this. I don't know whether he was awake at that point or not. Uh, but the man told me that the foundation of the temple in Jerusalem have to be laid right here in Iron County. Made a definitive absolute statement. Do you remember that? Were you awake when he said that? You think so? You think so? <laughs> well, it, I didn't mistake it. My ears went straight up because I remembered the scripture. And he said, it has to be built right here in Iron County. Now, the interesting part of this is he considers that Jerusalem in Iron County where we visited yesterday is old Jerusalem. And in his mind, where the treasures, the biggest part of the treasures are, which is probably uh, on the other ranch, I won't name it here over the air, but uh, he calls that the New Jerusalem. Because he doesn't believe that there's a God in heaven coming down. He believes Christ died at age 130 after having married Mary Magdalene and a few others and had a whole bunch of kids of whom he's a relative. It's the Merovingian doctrine that a lot of people have that are associated with the Masons and so on. It's, it's gobbledygook. So he doesn't really believe there's a living Christ. He thinks he's dead and buried. So he calls heavens the heaved-up place. Well, that hill is heaved up. And those cones on it, those volcanoes, are heaved up. So it is an application physically, geologically. But I believe there's a heaven of heavens above and the heaven where the birdies fly, and then heaved up places on the earth, which are another type of heaven. All of it applies. So he gets the first part, heaved up earth. He doesn't get the birdies, and he doesn't certainly get the kingdom of God. Well, he kind of gets the birdies, I guess. But i got no problem with that. He thinks it all has to be built over there where the treasures are. I'm all for that. Let him think it. That way, he'll send us the money and let us build it on the desolate area where it's supposed to be, where the Mount of Olives is. The Mount of Olives, somebody tested it yesterday with their phone. I'd already done it with a compass. And that mountain is due east of where, uh, I believe, the site of Jerusalem was. And the distance is right, uh, according to Scripture. That's where it's got to be. Christ is coming back to the Mount of Olives and splitting it, and that's where the temple will be, and the water will go out from it to water and heal the earth. So that's got to be the spot. And he don't think so. And am I ever happy with that? Because he won't be over there meddling with us while we're trying to do what God wants done, but he'll send the money, the gold and silver's God's. Perfect. Perfect. Let him stay over there. Count his gold bars. I don't care. But it says here that he would say that it had to be built. And when he told me that, he said it has to be here in Iron County, which is where the site of the original Jerusalem was. He's over in Kane County now. He didn't say Kane County. He said right here in Iron County. Fits the scripture perfectly. How did I get to Isaiah? Let's go back to Ezra. I got to... I got to Isaiah because these scriptures all tie together. That's why. So anyway, this Cyrus anciently said, God's told me I need to get it built. Who's going to go do it for me? Well, he was going to be kind of overseer in charge, but he wasn't going to do the building. Same thing today. Somebody's going to provide what's needed. 
But they'll say, who among God's people is to do this? Well, we've already seen the two witnesses will oversee it, and they're part of God's church. And the remnant who come are a remnant of God's church. Worldwide church of God. So he says, who will come build it? Verse 4, and whosoever remains in any place where he sojourns, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold. Hmm. Isn't that what we just read about? Uh, in Haggai and in Isaiah. And with goods and with beasts, God says there will be, Jerusalem will be built as villages or towns without walls with much men and cattle. Same thing right here. Provide all the beasts you need and a free will offering. And then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. They're the ones that God will raise up uh, again, according to Haggai. With all them whose spirit God had raised. Who did God, what did God say he'd do in Haggai? He says, I will stir them so that they will come and build my temple. To go up to build the house of the eternal, which is in Jerusalem. So they all strengthen their hands. He says, be strong and work in Haggai. Same story here. They all were strengthened and brought their things and willingly offered. And then Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the eternal, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought out of Jerusalem. I think we'll find those same vessels here in this area. Uh, they've been preserved. You know what happened to the guy that had a party and drank out of them, don't you? I, I think they're still around. <laughs> God preserved them from Belgish as are. So Cyrus, king of Persia, brought forth uh, these things and gave them to Sheshbazar, which is the Persian name for Zerubbabel. So Joshua and Zerubbabel were there. And they, the, that's the type that comes forward to the end time when it's built, when God is about to shake the heavens and the earth. So this is history. That which we read in Haggai is immediate prophecy, let's say. So there were vessels of gold and silver, about 5,400 of them, according to verse 11. That's a lot of gold and silver uh, things. Then it talks about all the people that came. Uh, the men of Anatoth, verse 23, were 128. Don't know what it'll be in the end, uh, but we're going to have a bunch of people show up. Uh, then they checked some people and found that in verse 62, checked their genealogy, but Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. So they checked people over to see if they were qualified. What did God say? Ask the priests. If you touch the unclean, are you clean or are you unclean? So same process back here that God says will be in the, the new one. Repeats itself. In the seventh month, that's the month we're in right now, uh, the people were gathered uh, as one man to Jerusalem. And then stood up Joshua. He took the lead here. And Zerubbabel. Uh, and built an altar. For the God of Israel to burn offerings. So on and, and so on. And they set it up. And then they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 4. And then they continued with the new moons and the feasts. First day of the seventh month began, they'd offer burnt offerings, but the foundation of the temple was not laid. Well, we came through the first of the seventh month, Feast of Trumpets. Now we're in the Feast of Tabernacles. Foundation hasn't been laid. When will it be laid? We'll see. Uh, but the story is very similar. Verse 12, many of the priests, I'm in chapter 3, verse 12, the chief priests and the Levites, chief of the fathers, who were ancient men, that had seen the first house when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy. Didn't we just read that in Haggai? There'd be old men that would see the former and see the latter, and see it rebuilt and rededicated. Then in chapter 4, we have adversaries that came, and things were suspended. Zerubbabel told them in verse 3, You have nothing to do with us to build a house to our God, but we ourselves together will build to the Lord God of Israel. So the Jews aren't going to be involved. 
The Protestants aren't going to be involved. It's going to be God's people that he gathers together to do this job, as Haggai says. You won't be allowed unless you are qualified. So then they hired counselors, verse 5, against them to frustrate their purpose. Lawyers trying to stop it. We've had a lawsuit filed against us trying to thwart us from because they don't think that the leadership here is qualified or that you as members of the church here are qualified. They have to do it. So they hired lawyers. Same thing here. And then cease the work of the house of God, verse 24, uh, unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they, they meddle and, and uh, cause things not to go forward the way that they need to. But then uh, they began to build in chapter 5, verse 2, and the prophets of God were there helping them. And they called it, in verse 8, Be it known to the kingdom that we went into the province of Judea. We'll go into Judea, uh, part of the promised land up north of Cedar City, to the house of the great God. So call it house, call it congregation, call it church, uh, call it temple. The proper name is the house of the great God. I, uh, I know of a place where they call it the church of the great God. And I think that they will be involved. I, I truly believe that. And they've already got the name. That's why I call this a congregation of God, just a group of God's people. Because the formal name laid out in Ezra 5 is already taken and will be utilized because that's what it says. Okay? Who commanded you to build this house and to make up these walls? What do you think you're doing? Well, I'll tell you who commanded us. Read Haggai, and those who pay attention to it, and those to whom God reveals it are the ones that are going to do it. Nobody else can't do it unless God shows you it needs to be done. And almost the entirety of the church now says it doesn't need to be done. The Jews will do that. We just need to get the gospel out. They're not going to preach the gospel. The two witnesses are. It's that simple. And then the end will come. They don't know what they're doing. Anyway, I'm about out of time here. Uh, but the story is very clear, I think, that both the temple and the city have to be built. Historically, that's the way it was done with Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, both have to be done according to Haggai and to Daniel 9 here in the end time. So there's a lot of work ahead of us. That's why he says, don't fear, be strong, be of good courage, and work. Because this will be coming down pretty shortly now. It won't be long if things keep going on in the world the way that they're going and escalating at the speed they seem to be escalating. And if 2026 is indeed the year Christ returns, we don't have long to get all of this done. And a lot of it's taken up with tribulation and building the, uh, building the city. So what about the temple? That has to come first, according to Ezra and Nehemiah, in the order which God lays it out. So this has got to happen fairly soon. So pray God's intervention, God's help, God's direction and willingness. says He'll be with us just like He was in Egypt. So as opportunity arises, we have to move forward.